Everybody and welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And I have a great show planned for all of you today. My guest will be Sean Barrett. He is the founder and of both Dr. Dish and Montauk Seaweed Supply. And he will be coming on just a little bit, telling us more about what he does. And I'll tell you more about him when he comes on in just a little bit. But first, I wanted to share with you some things going on in the news, some things, um, some ways you can take action, and of course, share my weekly recipe with all of you. First, I wanted to share that I am still accepting applications for my internships this summer. Um, I offer an internship to uh, college students um, who are interested in the field of agriculture, sustainability, activism, plant-based eating, any of those good things that um, one can sit around the table and talk for hours about. Um, if you love to get your hands into the dirt, you are um, probably going to be interested in this internship. Every summer I take on two to four interns to help with the garden, but also to help with different groups that come through my, um, my i.e. green homestead. Uh, we plant a variety of heirloom vegetables. We uh, pollinate, well, actually our bees, we don't have bees anymore, but we have shiitake mushrooms growing and some oyster mushrooms that we, um, that we get going in these big barrels of straw. Um, it's just a wonderful time of getting together with others that care about this. And then we share that knowledge with um, our community. We table at farmer's markets, we talk about the slow food movement, um, and we create a plant-based meal every day and share the meal around the table. And so it's just a really great opportunity and I'm still accepting applications for that. So if you are interested, uh, please send me a cover letter and application to Bhavani at IE Green. Um, I wrote about this week about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that is once again, you know, calling out everybody to really take climate change way more seriously than we have been. I mean, right now, you know, all the nations get together and talk about climate change, the Paris peace talk, the one that happened in Copenhagen, but we're not making the changes that we have to make quick enough. And, um, you know, with the war in Ukraine, you know, the oil and gas companies are using this as a wonderful opportunity to make more profit and up the prices. And the dangers of global warming are really here and they are getting worse. And if we don't do something really right away to move away from fossil fuels now, um, we will be dealing with much worse natural disasters, uh, flooding, droughts, wildfires, the entire ecosystem collapse. And it's going to continue getting worse and it's going to affect everybody, especially those living in marginalized communities. Um, so we really need to all do our part. Um, I'm sure you are aware of how diet plays a part of it. And that's something that all of us individually can do right away. It's not enough, but it's certainly something. Um, so think about, think about your diet, think about ways that you can lower your own global footprint 
and sign petitions. You know, let your legislators know we need to be louder than the lobbyists. And that's hard to do. The lobbyists make lots of money and they really represent the oil and gas companies and the meat industry and, you know, the dairy industry, all those industries out there. We need to be louder than them. So sign those petitions, write your Congress people, call your governors. Um, but really, we need everyone to really become active participants in globaling our global footprint so that we can advert the dangers of global warming that are really right here at our gates. So um, please do that. Actually, on my um, website and in my newsletter this week, I had a, a petition you could sign to you know, reach out to Lowe's and Home Depot's again to try to get them to stop carrying Roundup. Um, we need to do away with glyphosate, which is you know, affecting our pollinators. Right now, 40% of all of our insect pollinators are at risk of extinction. Um, you know, we're including the, the butterfly, the bees. Um, it's just really incredible. The decline has been huge. We used to have beehives ourselves and ours um, did not make it. We lost them about two, maybe actually three years ago, right before COVID. Um, they were um, infiltrated by uh, wasps. And so um, we really need to take action. And so if you could sign this petition, um, spread it around. Um, and again, just anytime you have an opportunity to sign anything to try to get these pesticides and herbicides off of our planet, please do so. Um, I wanna share with you my weekly recipe. I was inspired by a recipe I saw on the New York Times that was a linguine um, or a, a pasta with a cream sauce, but it was a lemon cream sauce. And I thought, oh, how not, it would be so nice to have a pasta that you know was rich tasting, but at the same time, not so heavy. And this linguine a limon with a cashew cream is really great. So I'm gonna share that with you now. You're gonna need two lemons, both the zest and the juice we'll be using, a pound of organic linguine or any other pasta you like, a gluten-free pasta or, um, or rice pasta, whatever you'd like, kosher salt, a cup of cashews that you soak for an hour. But I'll tell you a little trick. If you don't have time, if you don't soak it for a whole hour, um, you can actually soak it in hot boiling water. Um, for like 10 minutes and it really almost does the same thing. If you have a Vitamix, it's so powerful, you really don't even have to soak the cashews. Um, one to two tablespoons of a truffle oil, that's optional, but that's something you can drizzle on at the end for some extra flavor. Three tablespoons of olive oil, a cup of frozen petite peas. You can use you know, full-size peas if you like, but I like the look of the little ones. Um, two tablespoons of nutritional yeast, a quarter cup of fresh chopped parsley, plus a tablespoon that you're gonna save for garnishing, two cups of pasta water and salt and pepper to taste. And so you're gonna start by using a vegetable peeler, remove about three long strips of the lemon zest. And then with a sharp knife, you're gonna thinly slice each of them lengthwise into thin strands and set those aside. You're gonna garnish the top of the pasta with that at the end. You're gonna grate the rest of the lemon and put that zest into a little bowl then cut the lemons in half and squeeze them into a measuring cup or something. You want at least a third of a cup of lemon juice. Um, you can add more um, you know, to taste at the end, but start with a third of a cup of lemon juice. 
um, and put that in a small bowl and set that aside. So meanwhile, you're going to put the pasta water on and put enough salt in so that the pasta water tastes a little bit salty, kind of like the ocean water. Um, that will give your pasta flavor and you won't have to add so much salt to the dish. Um, cook the pasta just till it's really al dente because it's going to cook a little bit more in the pot with the sauce. So just al dente, don't overcook it. Um, meanwhile, while that's cooking, you're going to drain the cashews, put them into a mini food processor or a blender, add one cup of water and puree that until it's very smooth. And you want to really puree it until it's kind of like the consistency of sour cream. Um, but it should be really smooth. You shouldn't see little pieces of cashews in there. Um, using a large pot, uh, put the lemon zest in with the three tablespoons of olive oil and let that cook for just a minute to bring out the um, oil in the lemon zest. Add the cashew and cream to that and one cup of the pasta water and mix that well with a whisk. Um, cook over medium heat just for a couple minutes. Add another cup of the pasta water and mix that up some more. Using tongs, you're gonna to transfer the linguine from the pasta water into the pot with the sauce. And keep the pasta um, water there in case you wanna thin it out more. Because what happens is as you're cooking the pasta, it absorbs some more of the sauce and the sauce could get too thick. And you don't want the sauce to be so thick. Um, you want it to just you know, really be right on top of the pasta, but still feel creamy. So you're gonna to toss that well into the sauce you're gonna add the nutritional yeast, the peas, the chopped parsley, and the reserved lemon juice. And mix that up using your, um, using your tongs, lifting and turning so that you're not gonna um, destroy the pasta at all. And if the sauce is too thick, like I said, you can add a little bit more, um, a little bit more pasta water, just a little at a time. Uh, season with salt and pepper, then transfer to a pasta bowl, drizzle it with the truffle oil, add the lemon zest strips that you had put to the side and garnish with the fresh parsley. And that's it, it's delicious. Um, and it's a real nice change from, you know, a heavier red sauce or a pesto sauce or something else you might use. And you might think that it's like not light at all, but with the lemon, it really doesn't feel heavy. It's really delicious. So make that dish, let me know if you like it. Um, I love hearing from people, feedback on the recipes. And now it's my pleasure to introduce all of you to Sean Barrett. Uh, Sean has built a long career creating ocean-centric small businesses and establishing new models for the utilization of marine resources in North and Central America. He is the founder of Dr. Dish, an expansive network of small-scale community-based fishery programs as well as the Montauk Seaweed Supply Company. Sean is currently pioneering a sea to soil movement to revive an ancient symbiotic relationship between regional gardens and farmlands and our local oceans through the cultivation of microalgae such as sugar kelp, which is converted into a variety of fertilizers and livestock feed products. He serves as an appointed member of the Marine Resources Advisory Council at the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. He's also on the executive board of the Northeast Organic Farming Association of New York, advisor to the Federal Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council, and has been named Person of the Year by the United Restaurant and Tavern Owners Association of New York State. Awesome, Sean. Uh, welcome. Um, so that's quite a bio you have there. You've been doing this for quite some time. Um, and I always like to start my interviews asking my guests 
to tell me a little bit about your history. How did you come to um, love, you know, everything about ocean farming and fishing? And were you grow? Did you grow up on the water? Tell us about that. Yeah. Good morning, Vivani. It's really nice to be here today. I, I also wanted Thank to say, uh, yeah, I'm just grateful to be invited to the show today. And and I'm. Um, I was listening to your uh, your internship description and your recipe and thought, my goodness, I, I want to, they both sound amazing. I want to apply for one and, and try the other. So, um, so yeah, really nice to be here today. And I think, um, yeah, I, my story is pretty similar to, uh, to other folks who I find on um, kind of these lifelong career paths that just start really, really early. So I grew up, uh, my parents, kind of described earlier than I can really remember, but just obsessed with water and fishing in and around Shinnecock uh, area, Hampton Bays. Um, and, you know, some of their our earliest photos of me are fishing and, and getting really obsessed with tidal pools and learning every fish and bird and everything I could about the ocean. I was just really obsessed with water and ocean from a very early age. Um, and that really just carried on through as I grew up, I was constantly on the water, in the water, around the water, fishing, hanging out with other fish, fishy folks and, and seafaring <laughs> folks. Um, and, you know, loved marine biology in high school and um, originally was going to go to uh, Long Island University. Used to have a, uh, their Southampton uh, campus before it became Stony Brook was a big marine biology center where they had semesters at sea and all the fishiest mm -hmm. folks around so um so yeah that was just the foundation was just i think from my earliest i mean i as far back as i can remember just love the ocean love fishing and and seas and and i think that that was just uh maybe in my dna some way shape or form just uh -huh. from a seafaring folks i um and lineage so yeah that was the foundation and then i just kind of stayed on that track for the most part i was always in some way shape or form involved with um you know, oceans and, and and the sea, it was just has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. So uh-huh. And um your company your first company, Dr. Dish, was one of the first CSFs I've ever I heard of, which is community supported fishery. Um you know, yes. back when I was first promoting CSAs, um, mm -hmm. you know, we started hearing this little little talk about CSFs and what was that? And, Community-supported fishery was just such a wonderful new idea. And I remember way back at the very beginning, our first food conference on Long Island, where, you know, we had, um, you know, someone talking about community-supported fishery. Um, maybe you can share with my listeners a little bit of what that is and about Dr. Dish. Yeah, great question. And I feel like, um, yeah, that was some time ago now. That was about a little yeah. over a decade ago, all that yeah. excitement. But uh but yeah, I remember having great advocacy from you and some other community leaders at that time, and that continued through uh, the whole process. But the way that began really was um, growing up in the in the 80s and 90s and becoming very, you know, I knew what a local seafood market looked like in those days, and that really changed in the United States. In the late 90s, early 2000s, um, we began massive amounts of importing. I think by 2005 or six. Uh, over 90% of the seafood in the U.S. was being imported from overseas. And so I watched the transformation of our fish markets go from, you know, a largely local kind of selection, seasonal 
um, situation in the 1980s and 90s, and that included restaurants, menus, fish markets, everywhere you went, suddenly con converted to this very foreign, like out of season, you know, exotic species all over the place that everywhere I went that I was like, that's, you can't have that in January. Like what? So I, the more I looked into it, the more I realized that there was a systemic situation going here. It was a result of much bigger picture of globalization and things like that. But the way that I was experiencing that was through the lens of local seafood. So myself and some friends, you know, we'd always been trying to figure out uh, better ways to source and had an eye on more sustainable methods and <clears throat> um, direct connections. I think that was, you know, how do, how do you get the chain of custody for things as down from, you know, in the globalized industrialized uh, market, you can have 20, 30 sets of hands that are in a chain of custody from the start to the finish. So we wanted to see how can we get that back down to what we grew up on, which was really, uh, you know, you, you had a direct line and, and uh, able to view or know the source, essentially. So the reality is, though, I didn't, I did not, um, in New York, we created the first community sport fishery, and we did out of necessity, out of urgency, almost panic, created the first restaurant supported fishery in the country uh, with a lot of great chefs, Joe Real Muto at Nick and Tony's, Jason Wiener at Almond, some great local chefs, and especially uh, Dan Barber at Blue Hill embraced us right out of the gates in around 2012 or 2013. And he brought on, you know, Eric Repair and Thomas Keller and all these very well-known chefs who embraced the restaurant supported fishery mm -hmm. model. But when they asked me like, where did this uh, model come from? Dan Barber asked himself, you know, like, give me some background on how this all began. And I explained, like, really, we were just translating a lot of work we had seen in the terrestrial agricultural space with um, farm to table. We just translated a lot of that work to the ocean. So it was almost like a literal translation. Farm to table became dock to dish. Community supported agriculture became community supported fisheries. Know your farmer became know your fisherman. Um, but there was another very pivotal uh, influence and mentor and friend of mine at that time who kind of nudged and pushed us along, uh, Scott Chasky at Quail Hill Farm. He wrote a book called This Common Ground, which I read. Um, and that really was what turned the light on that like, hey, could we borrow this CSA model, Community Sport Agriculture, and apply it to local seafood? And so I, I went and met with Scott. We had a good long talk. It was this time of year, this kind of weather too, uh, over at quail hill and i'm against it and you know we talked through like he's much more you know he's a practical uh organic farmer who has run the oldest csa in the country now for almost 30 something seasons quail hill has Although been he's not there anymore as you know no no now it's right. Layton. yeah Layton right. is uh, another good friend of mine for a long time so scott uh -huh. is uh Scott's retired and, and doing more writing but I what's think, the name of um, scott has a couple books what's the one that you read uh, the Which first one? one I read was called This Common Ground, Life on this an Organic Ground. Farm. Yep, that mm -hmm. was a really instrumental and pivotal, kind of transformative. It talks not only about the mechanics of running a CSA, but also kind of the spiritual elements of it and the interconnectedness um, of it all. Uh, his second book, um, Seed Time, was also another kind of eye-opener. I had no really knowledge or understanding of just how important seed and husbandry and and that whole realm was right. until his second book, right. Seed Time. So, um, but Scott over the years was a great spiritual kind of guide and mentor to me and helped, especially in the beginning, 
Um, and Liz Henderson, who you know from the board at NOFA, I saw her last night at a, a NOFA soil uh, subcommittee meeting, but she and Scott, um, you know, their books and their work were really the, we just translated a lot of that. So I ended up getting all this kind of credit at the time for inventing this stuff. I was like, eh, I don't know if this is really well placed because I'm really just borrowing ideas from the farmers that they've worked on for a lot of years and have honed and are working in the, in the, on the terrestrial space and just applying those to seafood and water. So there was very little original thought in my process as much as there maybe was some naive daring and just jumping out to do it, um, which, uh, but other than that, it was really just a straight translation of things we had already seen working on the land that we decided to apply to fisheries and seafood. And, yeah. and the, but the results, I think, were, you know, pretty explosive. Like we ended up then um, getting calls and, and invitations from all over the country to come set up Dr. Dish programs in Los Angeles, San Francisco, up into Vancouver, all down through Central America. We ended up helping people create these community and restaurants, port of fisheries in Washington, D.C. area, all throughout the Florida Keys, and then out to Fiji. We helped some get started wow. in South Africa. Yeah, it just was, and I would tease Scott about it often, like, uh, when I'd see him, like, hey, man, I, or I'd send him postcards all the time, too, to tell him, like, hello from, you know, Panama, hello from all these exotic places where his CSA um, kind of framework, the scaffolding that he had set up with uh, at Quail Hill was being kind of replicated and repeated in the fishery space all over the world. And now there are, you know, community, especially since the pandemic um, came along, the community supported fishery model has now really um, become inculcated, embedded into certain harbors and, and seaside communities. So pretty cool. Well, I think it also took off so much because there was so much um, fraud in the news about fish, right? I mean, you didn't know what you were buying. I mean, how many people really can tell when they go to the fish market what you know a fillet of fish what kind of fish it is not many people and so you really have to trust the you have to trust the fish purveyor that you're going to and there was so much in the news about fraudulent fish and that you were you know you didn't know what you were getting and you know then you were being told to like ask what boat it came in on to like know if it was really the fish that you think you were getting and then even some of the community store imported fisheries i mean was it sea to table or right yeah. that that was fraud you know so even in the community supported fishery realm we we saw fraud and so i think you know people really were wising up to paying more attention yeah seafood fraud was one of the main drivers and the kind of um one of the things that pushed us forward continually because as you said correctly it was ubiquitous everywhere we went there was mislabeling not only species gear types states when was it caught all that information had been erased in these long supply chains the whole idea is to like mask the source and you started to hear these stories of slavery in the supply chains, of right. in oh, yeah. these hard shows. So in 2017, New York State was home to two of the biggest seafood fraud cases in our country. One was led by the New York State Attorney General. That kind of went after some supermarkets uh, and and blew out like that they, you know, it was widespread in that space. But then the second one was Sea to Table, which was an international, I mean, those guys had a full blown fraud going uh, from New York through Montauk, basically that all of the locals, like everyone was like, come on, man, like yellowfin tuna in January. You know, it was so obvious and flagrant to all of us. 
Um, but they, I think, I interview, you know, I interviewed one of those guys way back when, when they were first starting, I thought, Oh, you know, we were interviewing community support fishery. We thought it was great. And then, Oh my God, when they were, you know, implicated in that fraud, I was just like, Oh, you know, even yeah. when you think someone is doing the right thing, they're, they're dishonest, you know, it's just yeah. so hard to know as a consumer to, you know, you, you want it, you think you then know your far fisherman or, you know, your farmer and then. Yeah, but you know, you know, it's interesting, Vivani, like that is also, it's not unique to fish. If you look at food fraud at large in general, categorically, um, you know, it's everywhere. We started working with a lot of different companies uh, to start to do traceability. We have digital traceability, end-to-end -end traceability. In 2018, you know, we, we were in the, the Wall Street Journal Future of Everything Festival for we had created the first ever live tracking from the boat to the dock to the delivery vehicle to your door. You could live track like an Uber, your fish oh, coming through. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So that was really exciting. But at the end of the day, it was actually we went back to Scott and to Liz and said, hey, look, you know, we have a lot of these fake community supported fisheries springing up that are taking advantage of, of people in, you know, in the worst way, like appealing to their good senses and, and saying, you know, support local fishermen and, and uh, you know, source locally, low carbon, all the things that community supported fisheries really do deliver. They were greenwashing that and taking a lot of that language and then duping people at large. So we went back to Scott um, and said, and Liz, I will never forget this on a conference call with those two and said, how do we solve this? They said, you know, we ran into the same problem with community supported agriculture about 15 or 16 years ago, especially in California, where everyone loved the idea. All the sales folks in the business love the idea of being paid up front being able to give the consumer what they, you know, a supply-based system. But they said, you know, um, that there was rampant fraud and they painted a picture, especially, I guess, in California 10 or 15, now 20 years ago, of like people just popping up on the side of the road, like Bob's CSA with all the stuff he had just bought from the supermarket, basically. And, you know, cantaloupes from overseas and all craziness. So the big question was I had was like, how do we solve this? And it turned out the state of California actually ended up writing legislations and laws about what CSAs were and what they weren't. And the way that they did that, the mechanics of how they figured that out was the chain of custody and only three hands in the chain of custody from, so if you were a CSA, a truly legal CSA, it was only the farmer, a manager and the, and the member, basically three hands in the chain. We adopted a lot of those rules for fisheries. And when you when you apply that three hands uh, in the chain of custody rule to your seafood, um, you eliminate, you know, seated table is a great example. Like they have, you know, dozens, whether it's FedEx or UPS or whoever it was, um, it's, it's in the chain of custody where the fraud runs rampant. So if you can get that chain of custody down to three hands, that's typically where we advise people that the safe zone is. You typically have like a good, idea then of some authentic real information of where it's coming from and source confirmation and things like that but once you start getting up to these chains of custody that have 6 10 12 15 hands in the chain you're doomed to get so three hands three hands three hands custody would be you buy the fish from somebody you sell it to me that's three hands right the fisherman you and then me would that be right. the, that would be the three hands right exactly. so that's really couldn't be clearer than that right that's pretty yeah, yeah. minimal right yeah uh -huh. yeah 
So it, it means I don't have to go to the dock myself, but I do have to get it directly from someone who got it from the fisherman. Yeah, typically one intermediary that you trust, right? One local person who you trust, who you can see has good relations with, you know, for example, Scott Chasky and that kind of network, they're going to weed out, you know, they're not going to allow any type of like, uh, you know, nefarious characters operating in the space. So a lot of this all comes back to community and relationships within the community. Um, but certainly, Bavani, what we saw with the pandemic was almost that Dr. Dish, especially in Montauk, reached like a mission accomplished. You know, if you went back 10 years ago, and we were trying to explain to people why these things were important, why three hands in the chain of like even supply chains 10 years ago, people like, I can get, you know, Chilean sea bass delivered overnight tomorrow for cheaper than your local stuff. And we we're like, oh, so it, it was like this long ongoing education process. But the pandemic suddenly wisened everybody up that they were like whoa it became you know everyone wants to know about where was things coming from supply chains are breaking down and now we see this new kind of culture where there's two hands in the chain so like our scallop boats or you know fishing certain fishing boats will be returning they'll put out a message on instagram the captains and there'll be a line of cars down the block out the parking lot waiting for their direct sourcing right from the boats and we're and so wow. it's like we don't we almost, um, yeah, kind of hit just mission accomplished. And now everyone talks about knowing their fishermen, having direct relationships with this, with the source and things. So, yeah, it's, a, it's been an interesting journey for sure. Uh-huh. That's wonderful. So um, when did you start Montauk Seed Company? Montauk Seaweed, so I'm sorry. Montauk Seaweed, yeah, MontaukSeaweed.com is, uh, Montauk Seaweed Supply is, has also been, I mean, around 10 years ago, um, we started to take an interest in regenerative kelp farming and seaweed farming, right? And um, originally as a food stuff, because if you start to add up, um, the United States has very well-managed fisheries. Uh, if you look around the world, like, out, you know, people will say what they want about government management, but the way that the U.S. manages fisheries, we have the best fisheries in the world and a lot of most of them are rebounding so our, we're these generations are experiencing more fish than previous generations which is uh which is you know rare that you see a, a natural resource like that increasing while um you know it's typically going the other way so but despite that we have way too many people uh to we don't have enough fish basically um to be able to fully feed i mean if you broke out how much seafood let's say new york state for example is illegally allowed to be landed pounds per year and then divided that by the number of residents of new york state for example it comes out to like every person gets like eight ounces of seafood per year right so um so we recognize that if we want to start trying to derive food from the ocean, we're going to have to start looking beyond fish, that we're going to have to start figuring out ways, shelf, you know, shellfish kind of, but definitely farming the sea for sea greens, for vegetables. And so the process began um, with Montauk Seaweed Supply about 10 years ago, where we started to look to these kelp farms we were seeing, or largely in other countries, China and Europe. And I mean, some China and, and Korea have had these uh, kelp farms and, and Australia certain countries have had them and indigenous populations have had seaweed and kelp in their diets and as part of, you know, just their culinary culture for thousands of years. So, um, but it's an interesting story, Vivani. I'll tell you uh, how this happened. We essentially ran into 
Uh, food waste is a huge problem, especially in the seafood of sector, course. where if you look at how much, um, you know, the average yield on a round fin fish in the mid-Atlantic is around 40%, depending on your fillet person and the species of fish. Um, but so if you have a thousand pounds of black sea bass, for example, and you fillet that all out, you end up with 400 pounds of fillet and 600 pounds of waste, head, guts, you know, tails, all that stuff that... So in our community's port of fishery days, when we were doing a lot of seafood processing, we were generating a lot of waste because Americans will only really accept filleted fish. They're just not, we're not a whole fish culture uh, like some other areas of the world. So um, part of that, Dan Barber at the time was doing uh, Wasted, I think 20, 2013. And I had this idea of like, oh, what if we started to take all our leftover fish scraps, right? And, um, and, bring them to these farms to use as fertilizer. So this is where we, we had begun um, an interest in tracking and starting to work with kelp farming. But concurrently, then we started to work on putting nutrients from the ocean into the ground to help grow vegetables and, and uh, herbs and flowers and things and just strengthen the health of the soil. So those two things started continuing forward. Um, and ultimately, over the last few years, we started to continually come across new science and new developments that that steered us towards the realization that um, for a number of reasons, the fish uh, in the soil program didn't work. I shouldn't say that. A lot of where you see us now is the result of numerous failures along the over the years uh, <laughs> that just, we just continued to kind of fall on our face and get back up and move forward using what we had learned from these failures. And so... The Montauk Seaweed Supply Company is basically the result of about 16 different failures that we had over the decade. <laughs> uh, but we figured out what works. And what works is uh, growing you know, local kelp farms that basically sequester nitrogen and, and perform phytoremediation, which is a fancy word we had to learn for cleaning up the water. For you, You're well aware of how our local the nitrogen loading situation in local waterways suffolk county is in the top five percent of the country for highest nitrates in our drinking water which is technically according to the cdc a contaminated zone we're now in the highest um risk level for a lot of different cancers colon cancers kidney cancers so in in the marine biology community there's a full-blown panic going on over the last few years about how do we start pulling this nitrogen out of our waterways you've seen i'm sure the base gallop catastrophe die off a lot of the waterways every couple you know few months you'll hear about someone's dog who gets sick from going in the water there's all this you know the constant and fish kills they're all related to nitrogen going into the water so one of the big pushes for us with montauk seaweed supply was learning that these kelp farms actually act as a nitrogen sink and they pull out huge volumes of nitrogen out of the waterways so and carbon, uh, the kelp actually sequesters and captures carbon at five times faster than any terrestrial-based plant. It's one of the fastest growing um, vegetables or, or green, um, you know, kind of species on the planet. And faster growing than bamboo. Some of the kelp species grow almost like a foot per day. And they're capturing carbon and lowering ocean acidity and performing all these ecological um, services that we were like, holy smokes, like this is a real solution, not only for, you know, to start creating um, jobs and, and, and kelp farming as a small industry on Eastern Long Island, 
but also to start pulling nitrogen out of the waterways to start capturing carbon. Um, and then we ran into a whole series of other hurdles and headaches with laws we had to get written and passed and get kelp legalized, kelp farming legalized in New York State. But we pushed through all of that and are now at a place where this is the first year right now as we speak is the first year that um, the kelp bill has been passed. Commercial kelp farming is now underway in New York State. And we have about we have one commercial farm that we we fu we funded and sponsored that got started over by uh, the Fire Island Breach over by Ho Hum Beach on Fire Island, Bellport, kind of in that area. Um, but the Moore Foundation in New York, which is a very like forward thinking, um, kind of accelerating uh, nonprofit, Wendy and Justin Moore have started. They now have about fourteen or fifteen. Uh, kelp farms all over the East End that are working to pull nitrogen and carbon out of the water. Um, and that's where the big kind of epiphany for us came was like, well, can we now plug that into the soil, right? Like if we have a closed loop situation where we pull the nitrogen out of the, now, so you see a lot of this, uh, the farmers, the land farmers, um, asking, they're in a kind of a desperate state trying to find fertilizers always and, and strengthen their soil um, with, you know, local, locally sourced uh, biostimulants and fertilizer, fertilizer products, which just don't exist. If you look at the marketplace, it feels like seafood did in the 19, you know, early 2000s, where over 99% of the kelp and seaweed fertilizer products in New York State are imported from at least out of state. The vast majority, over 90% is outside the country. So there's really no local conversation around this yet. So we just were able to connect a whole series of dots here and have kind of come to a place where, um, to my astonishment almost sometimes, this plan is working. And now we've got kelp farmers coming online, we're growing the kelp, we're capturing the nitrogen, capturing soils to enhance uh, all types of farming operations, arborists, landscapers, um, winemakers. We're getting interest from just a broad spectrum, a gigantic constellation of folks who are like, wow, if you guys can produce this stuff locally, a lot of municipalities, towns, universities who are like, oh my God, we've been waiting for so long for someone to figure out uh, how to make. Wonderful. Yeah. So but it's I, exciting. I still have, a, I, I want to go back to the, the fish waste. So nothing, did you get to um, figure out oh. what to do with that 16% oh. of fish waste or is that still yeah, going it, to the... Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, but, but the way we learned that lesson, I mean, we, I threw out, we were hauling um, huge volumes, hundreds and thousands of pounds of, we would, we were working out of the Stony Brook, uh, it was at the time, it was called the Amagansett Food Institute was where we were doing our... Right, now it's about, the East it was, End Food Institute. Right, right. yep. Now, but, they, but we were still at that same time at the University Kitchen over at the Southampton campus. And we would. So that's what really started the trouble for us was we were filling the dumpster there. And in the summer months, especially, that stink uh, of rotting oh, fish. Yeah. yeah, so they were like, you better do some of this. So there was a number of things that drove us to try to fit, solve this problem. Um, so then we began flock freezing it, thousands of pounds of it, and then transporting it. But then we, I mean, that's heavy weight when you have, so I ended up blowing my back out. We had a few different strains and muscles. It was hard moving that amount of block frozen fish weight around. But then when we got it into the soil, um, Amber Waves Farm was one area, one crew we were working with, Katie and Amanda over there. Um, but then Jack up at Stone Barns, uh, 
Jack and Shane at Stone Barn Center ran into, they were able to put in their compost and they had much more kind of like a, a larger operation there. They were able to mix it into their compost. So they had more success. But where like at Amber Waves, for example, we ended up with a few things happening. First, um, we didn't mince or chop up. So it was more like larger fish parts. And it turns out that obviously in retrospect, like the fox and raccoons and skunks and possums are all very interested in that. So when you put it in, the, in that form, chunk fish into soil, the next day after a night, it, uh, you come out and crows and everybody else in the neighborhood is having a, a buffet. Peace. So that, right. that, yeah, that didn't work. The second part was, um, the smell, nobody likes that smell. And in the soil, it really starts to kick. And so one of our friends had like walked across the soil and the, the smell of the fish got on the bottom of her feet. And she had the little cats were following down the block because of the smell on the, of her, uh -huh. the, her feet prints were leaving and the cats were following down the block. So we realized like, oh, this is, this is not going to work. And so ultimately what we realized was we, there was no real way to solve that waste problem in the community supported fishery, but in the restaurant supported fishery, the chefs, as you know, are able, are capable and able of um, using like, you know, 98%. So they were taking a whole fish and breaking that down using the fillets, the taco cuts through all the cheeks, the collars, then breaking down like the, you know, the rack into soups, stocks, sauces, and all that fun stuff. So suddenly we realized that the restaurant supported fishery model was actually the viable way to not only um, streamline our operations and not have to be clogging up the Amagansa Food Institute with butchers and fish fillet people next to the pickle people and bakers. They were, every time we came through the door, they were like, oh God, here comes these cavemen with their blood and knives and fish and and so we we realized that all of that could just be put into the already existed in the restaurant so what we ended up doing about 2015 or 16 was just converting the whole operation into just a straight restaurant supported fishery and that solved the fish waste problem for us that that really was like the end of uh of us producing any type of waste because the chefs bill telepan joe real muto these guys especially jason wiener at almond Sam McClellan at uh, Bell and Anchor. Yeah, but that's still, uh, that still has to be more waste than they can possibly use. I mean, I know what goes into a restaurant. And I mean, if I, they could use their, their own waste that they're creating from the fish they're getting. But for all the fillets you're doing, oh, for all yeah, the people no. you're selling to, you still have to be left with a lot of waste that they're not going to just take barrels of waste, I wouldn't think. No, um, no, 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 no. So no, we shut down the community supported fishery operation. We that was the we realized there was no solution. If you're filleting fish for for Americans for the end consumer, if they're having fish, they're only going to accept fillet, right? Every which way we tried to cut it. There are certain um, cultures or subcultures within the U.S. that uh, that will that do appreciate and will work with whole fish, but by and large, the vast majority of Americans. I mean. Most Americans, if you look, we're not a very seafood-centric culture. I think the per capita intake of seafood per person in the U.S. is around 14 or 15 pounds per person per year versus like 70 or 80 if you go to Japan or other countries or sure. parts of Europe. Uh -huh. 
right? So we're just not a very fishy culture and we the people don't know how to, you are a skilled, experienced, talented chef at home that you know how to break down fish and, and work with a whole fish. The vast majority of Americans do not have that skill set. And so they're looking for what they grew up on, which is largely a four by four bland square white <laughs> McDonald's filet of fish. And so when you try to bring them, you know, like uh, the, the learning curve there are just so steep. So the bigger part though, Bavani, of that formula that we, we came to realize was the community supported fishery program, if you really want like local, traceable, well-managed, low carbon, um, seasonal, artisanally caught, artisanally processed, you know, all the food safety um, mechanisms in place and licensure, a fully above board operation, that the price per pound for filet of fish in that formula, the true cost is in the north 20s eight you know high 20s like close to 30 dollars per pound which is just for most folks um you know and we started to kind of get some people saying to us like yeah that's great you guys are doing great work but you're basically fish for rich people who can afford that 30 dollars per pound i have two kids at home and you know a right. pound of fish for 30 dollars i can buy four pounds of chicken or you know two, 10 pounds of right. other stuff right. so so we we realized that there were just flaws in um, that they were Achilles heels all throughout the community supported fishery program that we it was beyond our ability to solve. That's also where you see a lot of the fraud coming into the space because people can plug in cheaper, less, you know, uh, quality or, you know, fraud, like just basically swapping out and, and <clears throat> mislabeling things and getting that higher price ticket, ticket price, but filling in, <coughs> excuse me, lower you know lower quality fish in there um so we had we had to make a decision it was either um wind down the community supported fishery and just focus on the restaurant supported fishery or continue kind of limping along and we you know every year we operate the community supported fishery program we lost uh money that from a financial uh -huh. perspective we had we always will filter th things through our decision making through people planet profit kind of a triple bottom line so we look at the the people first, the benefit to the planet second, and then our bookkeeper goes berserk about this, but we typically will put our profitability last. So that's one of the reasons I think why we stand out sometimes in the business community. People are like, oh, that's unique. They're doing something different. Oh, look, check them out. And what, what they don't know is that we're also losing money doing it. So the community supported fishery was a great example of that, but the restaurant supported fishery solved all those problems. So we basically right, stopped right. doing processing and just, but yeah, the larger problem you discussed of just fish waste at large, fish waste in the overall still there. industry. It's still there, but there's some creative characters coming up with like, you well, know. Well, you know, did you ever see, did you ever see Dan Barber's TEDx about the fish I knew or yeah, something like I that? Fell, you know? I fell in love right. with a fish. Right, yeah. right. Um, you know, where he found out that you know the, the you know sustainably raised fish was being fed, fed chicken. Know, fish food that was chicken pellets. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You know, it just seems so <laughs> obvious. Why aren't they making fish food from fish pellets instead of you know from fish waste and making fish pellets for fish instead of chicken pellets that fish aren't supposed to eat? Anyway, I don't want right. to go there because I'm not into sub, uh, sustainably raised fish because I don't believe in you know farm raised fish anyway. So. Um, so I'm not promoting making fish pellets, but it just seems so obvious to like make fish food from fish pellets as opposed to giving fish, farm-raised fish, chicken, which they're not yeah. supposed to eat.
Right. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that, uh, Bonnie, because these larger questions of like, how do we solve these big problems are way above my pay grade, but I have had good luck over the years in being able to meet and hang out with a lot of like idols of mine, authors and Dan Barber is a great example, right? Who he and I have become friends over the years. And there was one, um, you know, really good friends. And a lot of these bigger problems, I'll come to him and say, Dan, what is the answer to this? Or how do we solve this? And I, I'll always say like, you know, Blue Hill is in many ways like our North Star. Like we can kind of navigate off of what they're doing, um, gives us a good position for how we should be uh, navigating in the world. And so Dan, one night, he invited, I'm um, sure you know, Carl Safina and, uh, yeah. and pa- Paul Greenberg, one of the preeminent fish writers in our realm, New York Times bestselling writer, uh, the three of us to come have dinner at Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which is a oh, how magical. Nice. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that night, I mean, we had incredible, like, I just listened for the most part to these two giants in my, you know, I was sitting next to Carl Safina and Paul Greenberg, just more or less in a state of awe, um, and, and listened to their dialogue as Dan Barber was firing, I think, 16 different courses of, like, the most blue-green algae and all the most advanced type of, like, um, sustainable and forward-thinking seafood dishes you could have. But I had that same question where to Paul and to Carl at dinner. I was like, you guys, what's the answer here? I was, I was trying to do underutilized species, you know, trying to figure out ways to reuse fish waste and all that fun stuff. And they were like, you know, Carl, I'll never forget it. Carl like didn't really flinch. He just said, the, you want the real answer? He's like, we need to move towards a a plant-based diet he's like all this you know kind of we're changing our seats on the titanic basically like all this trying to figure out how do we eat meat better how do we do fish you know he's like well you know i've been a vegetarian since i was six well when i was 16 i stopped eating meat and fish then when i got pregnant in my 20s i started eating fish again and kind of kind of stuck with that eating mostly vegetarian but some fish throughout most of my adulthood and let the last three years, you know, I just said, I, you know, I just know too much to continue eating fish, you know, so, yeah. I, or, and dairy, you know, I love yeah. dairy too. So especially with so many more of the alternatives that are out there now, it's so much easier. And yet I still, you know, I still um, say, you know, if I, if I'm traveling and I want to taste, uh, you know, something in a culture, in another culture, that has fish in it, I still probably will, you know, like we were talking about going to Portugal. I mean, it got canceled because of COVID a couple of years ago, but I thought if I'm in Portugal, I might taste some fish, you know, there's no fish, there's no vegan police out there that I'm going to, that are going to come down. But but for the most part, it's been great. You know, it's been a, it's a challenge, but it's a challenge that it's kind of like fun. You know, it's like, um, you know, next week's recipe, I, I made a, uh, egg salad using chickpeas, but I uh, was turned on to this black salt that has sulfur in it. So it kind of oh, gives wow. the chickpeas some of the um, sulfur, you know, the egg flavor. And I put a little bit of tofu in there as well, so that with the chickpeas yellow and the white of the tofu, you even have nice. to Anyway, it's wow. really great. I've made, I've made tuna fish using seaweed, you know, with chickpeas and made like a mock tuna fish. You know, so you, you kind of go outside your comfort zone and there's a million things you can do oh yeah so yeah but you're right i mean a plant-based diet it's you know it's it's what we all need to move towards for our planet so um so uh, we're almost out of time so quickly just tell it 
like you said, the, the time would just go. We're just winging it, and uh, um, and we're going to run out of time. So, with the um, with your seaweed company, um, you're are you making products that you're selling to people? Or are you selling doing it into fertilizer? I know I've been reading about them adding seaweed to cow food feed to make them yeah. less flatulent. And um, yeah, you know. But I also know that you know most of the methane that's coming from cows is actually through their belching, not through their farting. Let's say. Right. So, um, does this does the seaweed help with that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there's a few different um, kind of layers to how kelp and sea the kelp farm that we do, um, and the sea to soil movement. How that the benefits that has from a carbon perspective. The first being obviously that we're the carbon we're capturing in the kelp, the kelp then becomes a vehicle for that carbon to be buried under the soil. So it's fully out of the formula. It's a net, we're pulling carbon out, which is very hard to find and, and rare these days. Um, the second part is that that carbon that's going in the soil is then being used, carbon being the basic building block of life. The plants and vegetables that it's being used to fertilize and biostimulate they're then turning that carbon, parts of it, into new green vegetation, which is performing photosynthesis and turning more carbon into oxygen. And, and so um, you've got that. Plus the other piece, which is we're still in the midst of researching a lot of these things, but it looks like uh, putting kelp and seaweed alginic acid into your soil changes the soil structure and keeps nitrous oxide from releasing, which You'll hear a lot about that in NOFA, at NOFA in the coming months. Like that's about 20 times more dangerous actually than carbon as far as greenhouse gas. Um, so you've got very big potential for carbon capture and sequestering in the sea to soil kelp in, as a fertilizer category. Um, but the second big one is our fertilizer feeds. And we're just now working with the New York State Department of Agriculture and Markets to get uh, Montauk sea stock, which will be New York State's first um, we're doing a number of firsts here, which always makes me nervous because, you know, it's like Dan Barber will say, yeah, well, that's because you're visionary and you arrived first. But then our bookkeeper will say, no, that's that's because you're numbskulls and this makes no financial sense. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, we're bringing the first, um, you know, kelp based fertilizer feed uh, online this summer. Most likely we're in the final stages now with our organic certifications actually um, get it. we're really close to the top of the ninth inning with that. So I'd say probably about June, you'll see that coming to market. And yeah, on our website right now, you can go in the first, um, at least the United States, the first farmed kelp, sugar kelp uh, fertilizer products are now available. Regency is the brand that we have on there. And you'll see it at MontauksSeaweed.com. And it's great for lawns, farms, gardens, anywhere you're growing, anything basically. This acts as a... Um, basically a, like a little steroid helps to grow rooting helps grow extra fruit keeps flowers stronger longer it's just got an overall kind of like a multivitamin for your soil for anything you're trying to grow in there so we're excited yeah it's super exciting time here that's so great um and the kelp uh, fishing that you or farming that you're doing are you also doing layers with seaweed seafood or you're just focusing on seaweed because i know um you know i've interviewed people before that are actually doing ocean farming with layers of seafood in there with the seaweed 
Yeah, great question, Ravani. And we are. That's where New York State's kelp farmers are basically, are, they're already New York State's oyster farmers for the most part, with the exception of Shinnecock, which has a really cool program, the Shinnecock Kelp Farmers. Four indigenous women have now begun. My friends Tila and Becky, they just began. Uh, they're about a year and a half or two years into the first indigenous kelp farm on the, on the East Coast. But everyone else is oyster farmers who are adding uh, kelp to their existing oyster operations. So, um, as you know from a lot of these lessons we learned on land right like land we nature does not like uh like one species right monocultures right, right. yeah and so right. that's the whole idea we did us we did a uh, we had a three-year grant study with uh, stony brook that we collaborated with them on collaborated with them on to see if inshore shallow water kelp farming could be conducted and successfully with oyster farms so basically create turning these oyster farms into polyculture operations with a second species in there. And that's exactly what's happening now in New York state. So beyond that, I can't speak to, we have seen a lot of failures. There's a reason why scallop farmers grow scallops, clams farmers grow clams, oyster farmers grow oysters, kelp farmers grow kelp, because each of those is a very different thing. It's, it's hard to mix them all together and have commercial success. You can have a lot of, there's a lot of research and academics, um, you know, research kind of grant funded uh, success stories in there or, or for studies for academics. But as far as the commercial uh, space is concerned, those are specialized for the most part. And you'll see, um, so it's gonna, that's the goal is to move forward with having more polyculture, multi-trophic layered farms as you just mentioned and described. That's mm -hmm. the big dream, dream come true where you have, um, you know, scallops, oysters, clams, and kelp, and multiple species and varieties of kelp all coming off the same farm. But my guess, my hunch, my instinct is that we're probably in the ballpark of like seven to eight years, maybe 10 away from that actually happening. So we got to we got to crawl before we walk, but I'm happy to say that we're now up and crawling and at a, at a pretty decent pace and, and that we're grateful, Bhavani. This is so helpful without the work that you're doing and helping us to talk about the work that we're doing. Nobody would know about it. Uh, so we're very grateful to you for having us on today. And um, yeah, and thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Well, I want to thank you for the work you're doing because you're awesome. And uh, you're adding so much goodness to our planet and so I'm, I'm with you with the people planet and profit last that's that's been my motto all along and my bookkeeper's not so happy either but uh who cares we're happy so um anyway continue doing the great work everybody who's been joining us today thank you so much for joining us you've been listening to sean barrett with the uh, montauk seaweed supply company and you can find him online at montauk seaweed is it montauk seaweed company or just montaukseaweed.com MontauxSeaweed.com. Yeah, MontauxSeaweed.com. You can look him up and uh, see all the great work he's doing. And I will I'll see you all again next week. Have a great rest of the week. Bye for now. Yeah.